This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Daniel Sokol about what life is like as an antitrust academic in the era of big tech. 95% of academics already have a clear sense of what they're going to argue before they even start writing. And in a world where that exists, I think sometimes interests, financial or prestige or otherwise, might be parallel. Maybe in some cases they motivate, but maybe in other cases, really, they don't. The thing is, this has always existed. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. There's an old cliché about academics living in an ivory tower, suggesting that they're cut off from and disinterested in the real world, too busy with their noses in musty books and preoccupied with esoteric thought. But for many scholars, this couldn't be further from the truth. Nowadays, many antitrust academics divide their time between teaching and researching and a range of other pursuits that bring them into contact with and see them make significant contributions to professional practice, policy making and law reform. This episode of Competition Law is the first in a two-part mini-series on academia in the age of big tech. In this episode, we're joined by Professor Daniel Sokol, or Danny as he's known to most. He's from the University of Florida. And in the second part of the series, we'll be joined by Professor Yanis Lianis from the University College London. As you'll hear, they're not just from different sides of the Atlantic. They bring quite different perspectives to the topic. Danny's a full-time academic, but he's also senior counsel in the Washington office of the law firm Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich & Rosati, clients of which include Google. He's an active member of the American Bar Association, editor of the Antitrust and Competition Policy blog, and an advisor to the US Chamber of Commerce. Danny and I chewed the fat over how antitrust academia has evolved. What antitrust academics have got to contribute in the current era? and what risks they may face. And if you want to know what antitrust academia has to do with the US sitcom Big Bang Theory, you'll have to listen right to the end. But we started with some personal history. Danny, what drew you into antitrust as an academic in the first place, and what's kept you in it for so long? When I went to law school, I actually went for a very non-academic reason. It was the late 90s, and like many people, I too had an idea of a startup. Mine was in the mobile telephony space. Startup didn't work, but what I thought critical about law was the intersection of how law, and in particular, different forms of regulation, both responded to opportunities based on the current regulation and how any number of new technologies could actually shift the application of law. I was in practice for four years, and all of a sudden what I wanted were ideas that were my own, that I could think through rather than focus on what a client wanted and to end the inquiry at that point. So I took a fellowship and switched gears, and next thing I knew, 
I was a academic focusing in competition law. And it's been a wonderful time since joining the academy. I do get to think deep thoughts. I get to think about all kinds of interesting connections across different doctrines and across different disciplines and hopefully participate in a way that is policy salient. And surely academia must have changed quite dramatically over time while you've been in it. What would you say have been the major changes to the way in which we practice academia? More broadly, we've seen shifts in the United States. As a result of the Great Recession, we saw literally a quarter of all law students disappear. One response has been to make classes more focused on student outcomes in a way that focus on bringing high-level analysis to students that would allow them to also at the same time be practice ready. So it requires not merely theoretical rigor, but also practical application. I don't think that that was really the case, certainly when I was in law school. Maybe it's part of a longer-term trend, but I think that it was accelerated by the Great Recession. And are antitrust courses popular amongst students in the United States? Lamentably, antitrust has been a shrinking field in terms of student interest among domestic students. For those people who teach in schools in large cities, you find a large number of LLM students taking antitrust. You do find some students who take it, mostly those who are going to do deals and they want to understand antitrust risk. And in that sense, antitrust really, as it's taught, I think is inadequate because often it's not more than three days that you spend on mergers. And by the way, on mergers, let me be clear, that's where most of the action is in terms of number of billable hours. I'm interested in your observation that antitrust has been shrinking as a discipline in the United States, because certainly that's not the case in other parts of the world where academic institutions are proactively building antitrust capacity in their academics. And of course, that in part reflects its growth as an area of policymaking, enforcement, and therefore professional practice for lawyers. What's been going on in the United States? I think because many important contributions in antitrust on the scholarly side were made, let's say, from the 70s to early 90s, antitrust scholarship tends to be much more incremental in contrast maybe with jurisdictions that hadn't really grappled with these kinds of issues before. But part of it, I think, is also a function that antitrust is seen as a business-related class, and there is a strong anti-business bias in hiring in law schools in the United States. The joke that we always have is when in doubt, you can always hire in constitutional law because that's what a best athlete always looks like. I like to think of academics as integral members of what I'd call the competition law or antitrust ecosystem, the other members of which would, of course, be government regulators, enforcement agencies, business media, and even the public. What role or what types of contributions do you think academics should be making to the ecosystem? I think it largely 
depends. My own personal sense is even some of the great antitrust theorists have done wonderful work, largely because they've done consulting work on the side. So in a sense, it's an inverted U. No consulting work whatsoever, whether for government or for private parties or for NGOs, means that you don't really understand the realities of practice and the institutional constraints under which this body of law operates. Too much consulting work means you don't really see the big picture issues. So it's an inverted U. Where exactly we begin to lose in terms of too much consulting is unclear. I think what happens over time is that some people, whether economists or law professors, get very comfortable in just doing consulting. And sometimes they need to come back to just sort of think, what are big picture issues? But I think that they don't understand big picture issues unless they see in practice what's going on. And this means regularly interfacing with these other parts of the community, whether government or private parties in purely private activities. But some amount of interface, I think, is critically important. Mm, So straddling both worlds. That does raise certain challenges, though, and I'm going to come back to those. But first, let's just talk a bit more about the mainstay of the academic enterprise, which is, of course, research, publish or perish, so to speak. How much do you think academics should focus on research that gets them published in that A-star scholarly journal as distinct from getting their research out there in different fora through different channels, whether it just be by way of working papers that get published on the web or through blogging or indeed through submissions to government? In terms of the value of what we do? My sense is that you can have it both ways in our field. You can have the longer piece, but then create a shorter version that appears in one of the practitioner publications that synthesizes the basic arguments. What I think regularly amazes me is in a time when generally practitioners think that scholarship is very much removed from practice, this is not a complaint that one hears in the competition community. I think that practitioners are avid readers of work in law and economics and to a lesser extent in some other related fields because they see the value of the scholarly enterprise in shaping new areas of concern, new theories, and new ways to approach cases. So I'll give just a few examples of, I think, people that have reshaped our field. So I would say that Lewis Kaplow's work, both on collusion and on market definition, have caused a number of people in economics and in law, in the academy, and in practice to rethink some of their long-held assumptions. I think that the work originally by Steve Salop on partial ownership that has been augmented by empirical work by Martin Schmaltz and his co-authors and 
in a legal way, a synthesis by Einar Elhage, again, has people rethinking what does partial ownership mean to competitive markets. We have a number of areas like this where academic work bears a big imprint to how we rethink a number of ideas. How important is it that there be independence in academic work in order for it to have the kind of impact that you're talking about? Independence, I think, goes to a number of different areas. So a number of the people that I've mentioned have active consulting practices. Indeed, I think all of them do. And you sort of take their priors in terms of what they've worked on. And I think it makes the work richer. But I think that the proper thing is simply to disclose. So for example, Einar Elhag will put that he's worked on certain types of cases. I believe Lewis Kaplow goes a step further. Not only will he say if he informally consulted, but he will also note that his wife works in the financial services industry. Steve Salop always puts that he is also an affiliate of Charles River Associates. I think that type of disclosure doesn't change the ultimate arguments or what we think of the work. I think what it does change is it just puts us on notice that there's some kind of basis for the claim. I can't think of many academics who say, I'm a gun for hire. You tell me what to write, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. I think most people are hired because they already take a certain approach, and it follows from the approach that they're going to take. Talking about independence, there has been quite some adverse publicity surrounding academic research funded by big tech companies like Google. And of course, you'll be aware there was this one study called the Google Transparency Project that reported a couple of years ago that Google had paid millions of dollars to academics to support its policy and legal objectives, really in debates which were often antitrust-related crucial importance to its bottom line. Now, Danny, you were one of the academics named in the report and one of your papers was cited. That was a paper in which you argue in favour of being cautionary in regulating big data. I have to ask you, did you receive any financial or any in-kind support from Google for the paper? Not on that paper. So that was completely independent. And indeed, I had perhaps one would call it a rather cheeky disclaimer in the working paper version of that saying, not only did no one pay for this, but if someone would have paid, we would have been sipping Mai Tais on the beach. In retrospect, perhaps such a cheeky disclosure went a little too far, but no one did pay for that. And the ideas were my own. But had I received funding on that paper, I would have disclosed that. Many companies donate funds. Google is actually very transparent. You can find on their website everyone whom they do fund. Most companies don't go that far, but some of the work that is what you would call purely funded work is work that would otherwise not really get done. But there are papers from all kinds of perspectives that are out there. I think it adds to the mix Some of those papers, I think, add insights that we wouldn't otherwise have for those that are directly funded. I think that the ones that are based on people's experience also add because there are certain insights that we might not get 
if we weren't so close to the case ourselves. How do you manage the at least potential for conflict of interest if, say, you're working for a law firm, in your case it's Wilson, Sassini, Goodrich and Rosati. Did I get that right? Yes. And I understand Google is one of the clients of that law firm. How do you manage the possibility, at least, if not the perception of a conflict when you're doing research and publishing that may not be favourable to Google's position about the right level of regulation of its activities? Doesn't that put you in a bit of a difficult position? I don't check with them before I start writing. I write because it's what I think is interesting or what I want to write about. I don't check with people at the law firm. If I had to check with every single article, I don't think I could really work with that law firm. So are there certain issues that I might be concerned about because it would take a position contrary to a firm client? doesn't really come up because the only clients I work for are ones where I actually believe in their position. There are certain firm clients that have positions that I don't necessarily believe in. I don't take on that kind of work. The beautiful thing of having a full-time job where I'm a government employee of the taxpayers of the people of Florida, I can do whatever I want to do in terms of my writing. It's not from a lack of ideas that stops me. It's actually a lack of bandwidth that I only have so many hours in the day. And Danny, how far would you take this requirement or expectation of disclosure that you've referred to? You've indicated that academics should disclose any direct or indirect funding in the papers that they write and as well any secondary affiliations they might have with consultancies or law firms. What about when a university or research center or think tank is funded by big tech or some other big company? Do you think that that institution should disclose that? I like the approach that the American Antitrust Institute has taken. They list every single funder who's funded the organization $10,000 or more. I think that solves the problem. We actually have many companies that fund centers for all sorts of reasons. A, because they have some alums in the organization who want to give back to the university in a way that they think is tangible. B, because they think that there's a general good that universities provide, let's say in training of judges or training of competition officials. I frankly would require disclosure if they receive funding from some kind of national government or supranational agency as well, to the extent that you're concerned that there might be a secondary motivation in scholarship. There are people who do consulting just for governments as well, and they also take positions based on the ability to get future work from governments and, say, position papers. I think the easiest thing to do is just disclose direct funding, also disclose indirect if not funding affiliations that you'd want to know when you read a particular paper. So for example, in some countries, somebody has a secondary role in the government and let's say the in-house competition think tank at a particular competition authority. I'd like to see that disclosed as well. And I think we are moving in that direction. If you look at where we were at the time of the Microsoft cases, 
There was lots of money flowing from both sides. Very few people at the time disclosed at all. If we look even the law professors with secondary affiliations at that time, and I focus on law rather than economics, very, very few listed their secondary affiliation. I think really things have changed in the last three and a half years so that we see a lot more disclosure than we saw before. And that has become, I think, the new global norm. We've heard so much about the intensity of the lobbying effort being carried out by companies like Google, Facebook and others lobbying not just directed at government, but at other members of the ecosystem, and particularly those seen to have credibility because they are independent academics. Are there risks here, Danny, or do you see the integrity of the academic enterprise on these important issues as fairly intact? The moment that anyone enters into the policy world, there are always questions of integrity, but it doesn't necessarily cut the way you might imagine. We could imagine certain individuals who take positions because they think that they might get a governmental position as a result for being advocates for a particular side or other. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've taken money, but they've taken positions because they think that they will get greater prestige, they will get higher visibility, etc. And maybe when they're done with their term, they may also get certain consulting work out of it. We have people who are very careful with what they write because they offer expertise in court. And they certainly want to be very careful what they say, lest their own words be used against them in that context. We have some people who write papers in the hopes that they will get hired and take very one-sided positions for that matter. They haven't yet taken money, but they may take money going forward. And in fact, it's an advertisement to get money. We have some who, as part of their regular consulting, take an expert report that they've written and write it up in an academic format. And we have those that are paid to write certain papers. And we have those that take money from government for centers or otherwise individually, and that might dry up if they take the quote-unquote wrong position. I think all of these are things that impact people, but I think only on the margins. 95% of academics already have a clear sense of what they're going to argue before they even start writing. And in a world where that exists, I think sometimes interests, financial or prestige or otherwise, might be parallel. Maybe in some cases they motivate, but maybe in other cases, really, they don't. The thing is, this has always existed. And the real question is, does this look different than other academic disciplines? So if we look at the traditional issues of big pharma, in particular medical journals, or say issues of tobacco, I think this looks different. I am not aware of situations where people do empirical work in the competition space and are told that they cannot disclose these findings because these were the traditional concerns that you would see in the medical journals that only, let's say, three out of eight findings could be disclosed for the journal because of some kind of confidentiality agreement. Sure, and I think climate science would be a similar area where that might occur. 
<laughs> for someone who lives in a state where we may, in fact, literally be underwater in 50 years, it's not a, a literature that I follow in part because it's just a little too painful for me on a personal level, but I'll take your word for it. Let me ask you, perhaps to round up, what would you say are the major topics or interests that should be occupying antitrust academics in this era of big tech? I'd say that there are a few issues. Let me start with the law side. I think application of legal rules to new facts and to understand when the facts support or do not support particular types of intervention makes sense. I think that this is really important, particularly in an age of populism. I would say populism on both the left and the right. So the populism of the right suggests that optimal antitrust enforcement is just short of actual enforcement. I think the populism of the left suggests when in doubt, we should have strong government intervention and it should be antitrust because fines are high and because the structural ability to change the very way the society is organized is possible. For those on the right, this Austrian school of economics is not one that I share or take very seriously. On the left, the question becomes, when are other forms of regulation better suited than antitrust to deal with broader societal concerns? What does seem to be the case is competition law and competition policy seems to work best when dealing with issues of competition law and policy and not having broader objectives. We've seen in a number of jurisdictions, I think the United States more than any other, what happens when we have muddled goals we get policy that's inconsistent. We get policy that hurts consumers. And there's plenty of, I think, wonderful discussion within an economic framework. What's the best way to achieve economic prosperity within a traditional antitrust approach? From the economics perspective, I think we've seen some innovations for how we think, for example, about platforms. I think there's a lot more empirical work to be done. For a field that's been around for 100 years, there are many opportunities that are absolutely ripe. New technologies or even older theories, but in a new setting. It causes us to rethink everything from collusion to abuse of dominance to how we work through both horizontal and vertical mergers. I read the other day the comment that big tech is making antitrust cool again. Would you agree with that? I don't think antitrust was ever cool. <laughs> I think the strength of antitrust is that, in fact, it was never cool. It was the world of nerdy people, technocrats, the sort of people when you watch Big Bang Theory, immediately you can point to who among your academic friends or your government official friends would play each character on Big Bang Theory. That's what I think the beauty of antitrust was. There weren't significant shifts, regardless of any particular administration. There was a certain amount of stability precisely because it was uncool. That said, what makes it interesting, and I will take cool to be interesting in the sense that I don't think there's a single antitrust law or economics professor that was popular in the seventh grade. I believe this to be an empirical truth. <laughs> Speaking for yourself. 
No, I'm speaking for everybody. But uh, <laughs> what I would say is that there are many fascinating questions that are questions that haven't been addressed before and questions of first impression, whether first impression of law or in some ways empirically in terms of economics. How do online platforms change traditional marketing practices as between online versus offline competition? How do marketplaces work online? Are they the same or are they different than offline? These are fascinating questions. And I think the ability to bring traditional ideas to new settings is what motivates, I think, most academics. So Danny says antitrust academics aren't cool. And if you've never watched Big Bang Theory, trust me, or Danny, you don't know what you've been missing. Based on the number of chirps per minute and the ambient temperature in this room, it is a snowy tree cricket. <laughs> oh, give me a frickin' break. How could you possibly know that? In 1890, Emile Dolbert determined that there was a fixed relationship between the number of chirps per minute of the snowy tree cricket and the ambient temperature, a precise relationship that is not present with ordinary field crickets. How do you know what the exact temperature of the room is? Under the terms of my roommate agreement with Leonard, I've had unilateral control of the thermostat ever since the sweaty night of 06. <laughs> Even sounds a bit like Danny, don't you think? Danny does agree there's no shortage of interesting questions for academics in the new economy. He concedes there are risks to academic independence from funding by big tech, but these are not new issues. And anyway, in his view, the impact on what academics write and say is at best marginal. Next on Competition Law, in the second part of this mini-series, we'll hear from another leading antitrust academic, but this time from Europe. Yanis Lianis is a professor of global competition law and public policy at University College London. He's been actively pursuing initiatives to shore up academic independence which he says is under serious threat in the discourse surrounding big tech. Until then, you can find links to some of Danny's recent work, as well as our previous episodes and links at competitionlore.com. While you're there, you could sign up for a weekly email from me about upcoming episodes. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com, and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Catch you next time.